Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead. I am Len, I am your host for this week, and if you pre-order and buy the season pass, you will also get our good friend Rowan Kaiser. Good morning! And uh, we're talking today about the concept of games as a service as it specifically pertains to strategy games. Um, but uh, before we get into specifics, uh, Rowan, what, what exactly is games as a service to the uninitiated and how has it uh, sort of uh, found its way into the industry over the last, I don't know, 10 uh, years or so? Games as a service is basically the idea that a game is never ending and you're kind of paying a subscription fee to continue playing it uh or you know some level of um free to play is also games as a service basically a game is alive and it keeps being updated and built across as far as it goes and we see this in you know games like Fortnite which is sort of the ultimate game as a service um any massively multiplayer RPG that has a su subscription fee is constantly adding new content in order to make people continue paying those subscription fees. Uh, and in strategy games, you see it in things like Paradox with how they do an expansion every four to six months or so for most of their games across the past decade, although that might be changing, which I'm sure we'll talk about some. Or uh, a more traditional form is something like Civilization has done since... Uh, its third installment, which is, or maybe the second actually, which is sort of having a consistent set of expansions and occasional patches that uh, kind of revamp the game uh, to continue making it fresh for players as they, uh, as before, you know, they're ready to do full sequels. Um, so yeah, it's it's basically the idea that a game is not done at release. Um, and people should be continuing to pay for it at some level in order to get new stuff and continue enjoying it. Yeah, I think Civ is kind of an interesting one because they, within Civ 6's lifetime, have gone from, you know, what we used to just think of as expansion packs since, you know, basically the dawn of strategy games um, to where they did the, the new Frontier Pass, which is much more structured like a lot of modern, you know, season pass type contents where it was it was rolled out over the course of about a year and it was a lot of smaller stuff. Um, it's also really interesting because I remember when Civilization V was released, uh, that was a game that was uh, pretty messy at the start. It was not mm -hmm. it was not ready. And then uh, for access started just kind of dumping individual civilizations. You could buy the Babylonians for five bucks or you could buy whoever was next. And I think that that having them like sort of be perceived as nickel and diming people right after release uh, was a pretty bad PR hit for that game. And so they sort of switched back into the traditional expansion model uh, where you know, they added the trade routes and they added the religion and uh, these these big twenty thirty dollar expansions uh, that also had like seven or eight civilizations. And then Civilization Six, it seemed that they you know learned that lesson. We're going to focus all of our energy for updating onto expansions. And then by the end, they were like, you know what? Let's just toss a few new civs in here for, uh, you know, 
five bucks each, I think it ended up being, but it, it depends on how much you paid for the new Frontiers Pass. So they sort of got took a bad PR hit in, you know, 2000 or 2011, then eventually went back to that same strategy when the game was sort of waning as a as a creative force, which I I, I think we're seeing like this burst of uh we saw this burst of expansion packs and such across the the 2010s that is now kind of uh, falling down a little. Yeah, I, I remember like they tried to sell like a scenario pack was like one of the first things for Civ Five, and people were making horse armor jokes about that. That, of course, being sort of the in the broader gaming sense, I think horse armor in Oblivion was the first time that we had. Uh, a consciousness of this like nickel and dime type PLC. Um, I actually thought that a lot of the single player scenarios in Civ Five were quite good, but it was not not especially popular with the player base. Um, yeah, especially I, because it was kind of busted at the start. Like, why right, are you just right. patching the AI to make the whole game better all around instead of you know trying to get some money from it? That's not necessarily how game companies work, but it is how fans work. So is games as a service, do you think, like a, an actual phenomenon that has has some like separate, I don't know, characteristics to it? Or have strategy games kind of always had this concept? It's just that we called it something different. Yeah, I think it's it's much more the latter. Like we're not. When we talk about strategy games, we don't really talk about the games as a service model as in uh, the sort of traditional subscription fee, which is kind of the simplest way to go about it. It's usually you buy something and then you stick with it for as long as you have that kind of internal motivation. And the company will try to keep refreshing that motivation by giving you patches or expansions or both. Um, And this is kind of just continuing along in the same way as strategy games have kind of always been. It's just that the the internet and digital distribution make it a lot easier to smell, sell smaller things as opposed to larger things. Um, it's a much bigger difference if you're talking about, uh, you know, people who are, who are used to playing 10 hour action adventures, suddenly having those turn into hundred hour games with, DLC season pass things that will have you keep playing that until the next one is released at some point in the in the future. Uh, that is a major change for I think how other people perceive games as a service, uh, and you know there is to, at some level a rejection of that, or there has been uh, within genres that have traditionally not been that way. Um, Whereas strategy games, this it's much more of a continuation of what was already existing. Uh, now we can make smaller expansions. Now we can make sure that everybody gets these patches in the same in the same push. You don't have to like go to the website and download it. Yeah, I feel like some of the pushback might come from people who are used to like if you look at like StarCraft Brood War, that was still being patched. Like they weren't selling anything for it. They weren't selling cosmetics and they weren't selling, you know, there there was never additional story missions or anything. But the multiplayer was still being patched up till at least when the remaster came out. They might still I don't, I don't know what's going on at Blizzard right now. They might still be patching it. I know they kind of dissolved their main RTS team. 
Um, and that was just free for years, I assume, because one, you know, esports, particularly in, in Korea, and two, that uh, it's Blizzard and they just had the money to just have somebody be like, you know, a Starcraft to or Starcraft Brood War balance patch team that, <laughs> you know, wasn't considered a significant drain on resources or something they had to keep um, making money from. Um, and well, so I think Blizzard is an interesting example here because like before all the bullshit came out, uh, trust me, I'm not I'm not ignoring that, mm -hmm. but their reputation before uh, these things came out was typically as a company that would just keep go games going forever. Um, and in the last few years, their their reputation has taken a lot of hits. But for, you know, 20 odd years uh, from the release of Warcraft 2 and Diablo through uh, when they seem to have just switched entirely to free to play stuff. Um, this was a company that was the most famous in the industry for keeping their games alive. The servers were always up regardless of how old the game was. They would be patching it and making adjustments and balance tweaks and so on. Uh, this this was like kind of the ultimate games as a service company. They weren't nickel and diming you on on random bullshit. It was, you know, you buy the expansion, you, you have access to whatever everyone else has access to. Um, and yeah, that's, that's changed in ways that I think you especially dislike. And I, I also, uh, am not the world's biggest fan of, <laughs> um, with the success of Hearthstone and, uh, Overwatch having the loot chest, even though it's also a, um, I want game instead of a free to play game, but right. yeah, they, they, they have always treated their games as a service, even though they weren't actually charging for it. But now that they figured out how to charge for it, well, Blizzard is, is in a, in a much different place than they were eight years ago. And I'd be kind of curious to know if like all those years that, you know, they were just patching brood war without selling anything extra. I don't exactly know how like the licenses in like the PC cafes, which is from what I understand, the normal like way to play those types of games in in South Korea and in a lot of East Asia. I wonder if that was paying for the continued development because that's its whole, whole own model. Yeah, um, I I mean, I think there might have been, you know, expectations that uh they would be able to get money from other kinds of licensing or whatever, but also just right. that blizzard was a company that gave itself and you know loved having the reputation of the most player-friendly company around um you were you were not going to have a game have the rug pulled out from you with blizzard uh and then you know as a heroes of the storm fan <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i got i uh, they started pulling rugs out from under me thanks thanks a lot activision which also you know that's that's a major thing is that Blizzard was purchased by a larger company with one of the biggest assholes in gaming at the head. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that uh, that can that can have tend to have consequences. Um, yeah. Well, I think I think what this has sort of evolved into, I mean, Blizzard doesn't make strategy games anymore. Uh, as far as I know, they, they're not interested in it. Um, what we've got today, uh, we have basically these big stra sprawling strategy games with 
you know, 500 DLCs where, uh, you know, they're they're supported for seven, eight, nine plus years after they came out, which I think, you know, obviously kind of started with Crusader Kings 2, uh, as far as I'm aware. Uh, and now Total War has kind of also picked up that. Uh, yeah, Total that War strategy. is a, Total War is especially interesting because you can view the like Total Warhammer project as one giant game with several installments released over time. And Mm -hmm. you can also view it as a bunch of distinct little elements um, that, you know, will add up if you're buying everything at launch to like $400 maybe. Um, And yeah, you know, then you also look at other creative assembly things like uh, three kingdoms, which they just, suddenly they kept patching the game and often in ways that made it seem worse. And then they just suddenly <laughs> announced that they were done and sorry, we're moving on to the next uh, three kingdoms related thing, but not anything about what that was. So this is, this is a weird situation where creative assembly and Sega had sort of gotten people onto the idea that they were doing this games as a service thing. And three kingdoms was going to be a live game for like five years and it just suddenly stopped when it probably needed more. Um, so people were upset that they weren't doing the continued games of, as a service. And I think mostly rightly, like I think that, you know, gamers overreacted, but it was a pretty shocking thing, especially given the current state of the game where they added uh, gates that serve as like, are supposed to serve as checkpoints, but the AI can just walk through them. Mm-hmm. in many situations yeah. so they like added a thing that theoretically should be in a three kingdoms game but it was broken and they basically said we're never fixing this yeah it's to the point that i've been reading like the the dev diaries for Cathay in warhammer 3 and they're talking about oh yeah there's the eagle gate and the turtle gate and the snake gate and i'm just like scratching the back of my neck like did you guys make gates work or is this just gonna be another <laughs> Because they're broken on uh, Mortal Empires currently as well. Um, but yeah, that was that was super weird. Like, I still, my theory is still that they want to do, like, a sequel right away. Like, they're looking at, you know, Romance of the Three Kingdoms is up to number 18 now. And I guess maybe DLC doesn't sell as well in the East Asian market. So they just want to release a sequel because they get more return on investment for that. Yeah, I think... Um, I think Brian talked about that a little with uh, on the last Three Kingdoms mm-hmm. show we did, where he basically said that in general, like this kind of DLC model doesn't really work as well in places like China. It could it could have been somebody else completely different from Brian. I don't remember exactly, but we'll pretend Brian's smart. Um, yeah, <laughs> and so it actually makes sense to either have a game that you're doing free to play and kind of updating constantly. Or you're ha- doing a game that releases sequels consistently, like Romance of the Three Kingdoms or Dynasty Warriors, uh, that are you know into well into double digits. Right. Um, but yeah, with with Warhammer, it seems like they're taking the opposite strategy. I think. I mean, the original Warhammer Warhammer One came out. Like I think Barack Obama was still president. <laughs> 
It was it was definitely like, around election time. Yeah, like it, it's 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 a lot. It's it feels like an entire lifetime ago. Um, and now they're about to release the third game, which is going to have like seven new races if you count the pre-order bonus. And they're talking about on Twitter, you know, people asking why isn't blah 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 in the game. They're like, no, uh, Warhammer Three is going to be around for a long time. We're planning to support it for for a long time, even after release. So yeah. it might be like a whole decade of Total War Warhammer before they, you know, actually wrap this thing up. Um, for it's all we know, May twenty sixteen. Okay, yeah, that's that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so like the first Total Warhammer is really interesting because it only had four factions. They were four of you know the biggest, popular, most mm-hmm. popular factions in uh, Warhammer Fantasy. But a lot of people like Fraser talks about how he just did not enjoy any of those factions. But when they started adding the the Beastmen and the Wood Elves and so forth, suddenly, he, mm-hmm. you know, it unlocked for him as a game that was slightly better than a seven. Um, <laughs> the so. Like. Thinking about going back and playing uh, the original version of a game like Total Warhammer is very strange, like. When I reviewed Crusader Kings 2, I got like a download code, but Paradox also mailed me a hard copy of the game. So I could like take that CD, put it in my drive and play original version 1.0 of Crusader Kings 2. And like. In some (laughs) ways, that's kind of a neat thing to think about, like that you could go through and like play the original forms of these things that had so much added over so many years. Um, And in some ways, I think that like that first total Warhammer campaign was actually the best campaign design they had. Like four factions was not enough, but the way that they managed to get the chaos invasion to keep the game flowing in a pretty interesting fashion, even when you got into the end game, which is usually a nightmare in totals war. Uh, like, I kind of miss that. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, I guess it's just when you have less map area to deal with, maybe it's a little easier to balance. Because, I don't know, I, like, I feel like in the newer versions of Mortal Empires, if you just have chaos spawn everywhere and, like, they do really well in most places, you're going to end up too overwhelmed. But if they like fizzle out because they spread themselves too thin, you just might never see them. So it's like, yeah, the more moving pieces you add, I think the harder it is to get that specific mechanic to work reliably. That yeah. Be what's going on. Yeah. Um, so so there's, you know, really interesting. I don't know, kind of like. Tension between does this game work in a way that I'm super happy with? versus is there consistent amount of new stuff are these mechanics that i think you know should religion be a, an essential part of a civilization game does it actually add anything other than you know some level of historical accuracy to put religion into a civilization style game like we saw this with humankind where religion seemed to be only half implemented um Mm-hmm. It was an extremely promising half implementation, especially in the early game. But if that game had been released without religion 
and then they just said no we don't think that that's that's making our game good people would be upset as hell uh i think when um civilization five was released initially without religion mm-hmm. or maybe it was six I it think, was no, I five think, yeah it was five. five launched without any religion mechanics yeah yeah and that would you know there was there was kind of an outcry about this because religion had been included in civilization four and like there was this expectation that every new edition was going to be included in the existing games that was maybe not the world's greatest uh expectation i do think religion in civ 5 ended up being a much better implementation than civ 4 had it one of the few places where i think civ civ 5 was preferable to civ 4 but it's it's like Europa Universalis players call it uh, spaghetti, where they keep mm-hmm. adding new mechanics that are like continuously buried in the interface somewhere. Um, and then eventually they just released a bad expansion for EU4. Uh, I don't know if, if you know, the damage has been healed from that. I haven't played EU4 since. That was Leviathan? Yeah, Leviathan was the one that was just an absolute mess on launch. Yeah, yeah um, so you have these situations where there's sort of an expectation of continuing content and building things up. But when you get that, sometimes it doesn't work and makes the game worse, uh, which I don't know is. Yeah. There's also that happened with darkest dungeon. Also Uh, there, there one major um, kind of story expansion. Mm -hmm. Uh, The, the, court of the crimson king i believe or yeah, is the, that is that prog rock uh or is it it's both? a vampire it's the vampire one. yeah the yeah. vampire expansion like it added a kind of out of the tactical mode tension to the game that i felt completely destroyed what was special about darkest dungeon oh i totally agree yeah and um i think that like the darkest dungeon developers sort of realized that this was this was a major problem and they kind of cut back on what could have been, you know, uh, ambitious continuation of how darkest dungeon was supposed to work. And instead you get like the shield bearer who doesn't have like a huge story with her. She's just another class to play in the game. And one of my favorites, but, uh, she just has like a couple little missions where when you're resting occasionally you'll have a nightmare that you have to have a fight in but it doesn't really change the structure of the game in any way and then they have like a semi-multiplayer thing and like a a sort of never-ending dungeon mode but they were not things that were like they did not want to change the extremely functional balance of the existing game after the vampire one kind of messed it all up so i'll be interested to see what darkest dungeon 2 does with that kind of thing yeah, it is sort of this this um, kind of innate problem with having a, a very complex strategy game that is supported for so long. If if you feel like you're maintaining your player base by continuing to add new features, which is where I think, you know, some of the Paradox games have gone wrong uh, versus Warhammer's philosophy has kind of been total Warhammer's philosophy has been to release new features with each new game in the trilogy, but then most of what they sell otherwise are just new factions and new lords for existing factions where they have their own 
self-contained mechanics that take effect when you're playing them, but they're not making huge changes to how the world and the board works. And they're not like adding things that are like, okay, this is just a new mechanic that everybody has to deal with now. Yeah. And um, this is, this goes back to the show we did about faction is we did that show, right? We, I, we I'm yeah, we did sure it. We, we did, did it. Yes. <laughs> uh, where like it has become a thing in strategy games to have extremely dis- distinct factions. If you go back to the original civilizations, like the factions were not especially distinct. I think they had like one unique unit in Civ 1 or they had nothing really between them in Civ 1, uh, one unique unit in Civ 2. And then Civ 3 starts adding kind of generalized uh, traits that they have. Like this civilization is industrious, therefore its workers work faster. And China is the only civilization that is militaristic and industrious. Therefore, you know, China has certain traits which by Civilization V becomes, we are going to make these factions incredibly weird and different all across the board. And Total War follows this. Games like Endless Legend obviously follow this, where having multiple different factions that you can continue to add to because they're not just names and city lists, they're actually distinct ways to play the game and you know depending on which faction extremely distinct ways to play the game uh like venice and civ 5 is you know the one city challenge or uh the beastmen and total warhammer are a horde that you're just trying to destroy cities you're not trying to build them up um all these things add up to creating a situation where adding new factions is a part of the game that is pretty easy to say is like this is our expansion plan Mm -hmm. um and like that makes i think the relative ease of that in certain forms of strategy game also makes people kind of think oh well we can expand in different ways but as darkest dungeon showed expanding in those different ways might actually cause more problems than it solves or uh or the opportunity it you know, kind of ruins the opportunities that already existed within the game. Um, So Darkest Dungeon, you know, the rough equivalent is adding classes. But even that, like the fact that you only have 15 different classes to go with is also kind of a selling point for the game balance. Uh, Right. And and I think that that's honestly why why Total Warhammer's DLC model has been so effective, because it's like, yeah, if if they release Imric and like Imric's just mechanics, just like they aren't it, like they're they're weird, they're they're broken. It doesn't break everything else. There's still like 500 other characters you can play as. Yeah. Um, whereas you know, I think as as a case study, EU four is is at a point where multiple times in its life cycle it has added features that just apply to everybody if you own the dlc that were not that great i think estates were the first one that uh kind of the community was largely in agreement that this is weird and 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 doesn't really work and i don't like it um well the the interesting thing about estates and a lot of the eu4 expansions that have like focused on specific areas like the timurids and uh china and so on is that I feel like there was sort of an idea that once those expansions or once those like region packs have been released, 
uh, Hearts of Iron 4 has this a, a bunch as well. Uh, that is them saying we have figured out the best way to make this game and therefore we can't change it because people have already paid money for it. So mm -hmm. once you buy the estate's uh, expansion, if they change the estate's in order to make them significantly better or got rid of them, then the people who had bought that expansion are kind of getting screwed over. Yeah, it's a weird, <laughs> it's kind of a weird catch-22, because it's like, yeah, I paid for this feature, and this feature isn't actually good. But if they took it out, it would make the game better, but then what did I buy this expansion for? Which I think they, they actually ended up, like, tagging some other new thing onto that classic <laughs> expansion yeah. just to like uh, uh, alleviate those feelings. Um, but it's created this 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 game eight years on that really feels way too bloated in terms of like baseline features um, compared to what it was at launch, because that was their strategy for the longest time is like major expansions are going to add big new features uh, to the point that they've now said we're not doing that anymore. Um, I kind of wish they would just like wrap you for up and move on to the next one. But even today on Twitter, <laughs> I was told by the uh, by by uh, Johan, the, the head of the studio that makes you for that. No, they're planning to do uh, a bunch more flavor packs for it. Um, and it, the flavor packs are interesting because once you buy a flavor pack for like Russia, I think was the first right. one. They, that also has the the situation of, well, what if they kind of messed that up or they thought of another thing that they could do to make Russia better, but people have already paid another an extra ten dollars for the existing one, uh, and so it's it's this kind of weird situation where by having the freedom to change specific parts of the game, they're also tying their hands and changing those specific parts of the game later. Yeah, and it seems like that they're sort of sort of starting to move more towards the creative assembly model with we're going to sell we're going to any major changes we make to the game are just going to be patch stuff. And then we're going to sell something extra for if you play in this part of the world or if you play as this type of government or whatever like that. Yeah. Like so it's an interesting sort of um cross-pollination in that I feel like Creative Assembly kind of started doing DLC the way they do, watching Paradox, and then in a way they ended up doing it better, and now Paradox is kind of looking at them and being like, okay, maybe we should do something more like that because this has caused so many problems for us. Um, where, you know, it's it's this uh, ecosystem that's, that's sort of developing in front of our eyes uh, where... I don't know that anybody has quite hit on like what the ideal, <laughs> I guess, pricing and release structure for this type of game is. If you want to keep it going for like 10 plus years after the original release, but it is very interesting to see them play off of each other in that way. Yeah. And I think Paradox is also especially interesting in how they've done it because Crusader Kings 2 was sort of, I don't know. It, I, I like to think of it as sort of the first like major game that really could only have existed because of Steam or because of mm -hmm. digital downloads, because 
so much of it was just kind of slow word of mouth and then expansions adding little bits and pieces to it. And I kind of like to describe Crusader Kings 3 as like almost everything great about Crusader Kings 2 sort of felt like a happy accident. And then they just sort of kept adding things to lean into those happy accidents. Like, you know, all, all of the sort of role-playing oriented expansions. This was not, you know, this is the Klauswitz, uh, engine is not designed to do like in-depth character creation in mm -hmm. the way that uh crusader kings 2 ended up sort of realizing was what it was supposed to do so crusader kings 3 at some level is kind of this is the version of the game that actually has an interface that makes it reasonable to do all the cool shit that we tried to do with crusader kings 2 um but you look at Crusader Kings 3, and we are now over a year since release with no major expansions. I don't think patches have done anything but uh, fix bugs and quality of life thing. I don't think they've, they, they've like dramatically changed any aspect of the game. Uh, so it seems like Paradox has really slammed the brakes, not just here, but in, in various other uh, realms of, or various other games that they have where it's like, okay, there are actually problems in how we have been handling this let's kind of go back to a traditional expansion mode yeah well remember they used to sell like you know face packs and clothing packs and music packs and like all this stuff separately like there was like you would even like six months in there were so many like dlc items available for like right. eu4 that it was you know daunting um, and now it, it has started to collapse back down to where they're just kind of folding all of that into these yeah, larger be expansions. Because, like, Crusader Kings 2, if you kept up with it and knew what everything did, was a really fucking good game and not actually even that difficult to get a grasp on what you were what you were doing both outside in terms of like putting a new campaign together and inside in terms of, you know, how you actually play it. But increasingly for new players, there wasn't like a what I just buy this one thing and I'm good to go. And, you know, you you made those Reddit posts about with which expansions were the most relevant. You're you were you were deep in that shit. Um, <laughs> and like this, this came back and, and hit me, too, because. Uh, you know, I gave Stellaris a, a perfectly legitimate low score uh, because the initial release of it was pretty goddamn boring for me. And now Stellaris is relatively fixed. Like, I'm not going to say it's my favorite strategy game, but if somebody, you know, gave me a bunch of money to play more Stellaris, I would probably do it uh, without complaining too much. Uh, I mean, I would complain, but it would be ironic. <laughs> Um, the, so you like Paradox PR and me and, uh, my editor at IGN were all like, okay, we should try to do a new, a new review. Like it's been five years or four years or whatever. Uh, many of the biggest problems I had have been fixed. Other things have kind of, uh, maybe taken their place a bit or never quite been fixed, but this is no longer that boring game. This is a game that does actually give you things to do instead of stare at the screen and scream something happen, please. Um, <laughs> but because there was no single version of Stellaris that we could like hook to the database, 
we couldn't actually figure out a way to say the review. Like, are, am I reviewing the new expansion specifically? No, I'm reviewing the whole game with four years of patches. Am I reviewing a Solaris complete? No, you go to Steam there, you have to buy like six distinct items in order to get the version of Solaris that I have been playing. Um, and this creates this really interesting uh, just kind of database problem or, you know, how you document these things, because, you know, Steam has Stellaris and a bunch of Stellaris expansion packs. Uh, IGN has Stellaris in their database and probably a bunch of expansion packs, but not with individual reviews. Uh, but maybe I review all of them in the perfect world, but we're not in a perfect world. I need something to attach that to if I don't <laughs> have it. So at a certain level, if Paradox wanted to get a new Stellaris review out there, they would have to essentially do a Stellaris complete. But as soon as they say Stellaris complete, then they're probably not doing major patches and expansions for that. And like a new Stellaris expansion, not a major one, just an aquatic species pack or whatever got announced today. Yeah, it's it's really like, it's really an interesting dilemma with i guess not necessarily dilemma it's a it's an interesting problem with how we have typically written game reviews um because like i did a re-review of path of exile that was like i don't know five years after it came out or something but it was just path of exile like i could just install path of exile and it's had five years of patches and like that's what i'm looking at whereas it is like impossible to evaluate a game like, you know, Stellaris or, or EU4 based on like. I feel like you either have to you have to say you're just reviewing the base game or you're reviewing it with all of the DLC because they play off of each other in, in a lot of yeah. ways to where like there's there's technically like number of expansions squared different <laughs> EU4 or Stellaris experiences you could have now. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting dilemma specifically for game reviewers, um, but also for people who are purchasing a game years later, like right, they have yeah. to know what on earth is actually something that they need versus something they might want versus all these other things. And you know, we we've talked with Troy a bunch, and he's talked about mm -hmm. like this is this is a a thing that Paradox talks about, like they consolidated a lot of the Crusader Kings expansions. You don't have 40 different $3 unit and face packs anymore. They're all part of, you know, one right. specific uh, uh, bundle. So like you go to Crusader Kings 2 and instead of having 60 expansions, there's a much more manageable number to talk about right now. Um, and that's that's important for new players, not just in terms of like, Oh, how am I going to how am I going to learn about playing this game or whatever, but just going to that landing page, seeing six thousand items and noping out is very real. I've done that. Uh I don't have to do it for oh, games yeah. that, you know, I'm friendly with the company enough that they send me uh send me their codes, but uh I have done that with other things that are not within my um my wheelhouse. Well, I think that kind of brings up one of the major differences between this sort of model and what you see in a lot of other 
um, games as a service games, which is either that they'll have a subscription fee or it'll be free to, to get the base game. And then you can sort of piecemeal um, buy things on top of that as desired, um, which Paradox has experimented with the subscription model. I'm not sure if they're still doing it. I know they they did some A-B testing with, with EU4. I'm, actually, I want to look and see if that's still something that's available. Yeah, uh, so, you know, one method that Paradox used for this was to offer to a few people. I got one, which I didn't need for mm -hmm. the aforementioned reasons. Uh, but, you know, I logged into EU4 and it said, you know, pay $5 a month and you can have access to every expansion. And... At a certain level, it sort of feels like conceptually, yes, this is what they have been working towards. But mm -hmm. that's also a model that's more famously used in specifically role playing games, not in strategy games. And I'm I'm not sure that it was actually popular enough with players compared to the idea of it making a ton of sense. Yeah, um, and I'm curious if this could work. Like, I don't know. Like, I I, I don't know. I I don't know what the data was. What what their their perspective on how that actually worked out or didn't work out was at the end of the day. Um, I think I think the fact that we haven't seen it implemented all around suggests that it was not especially right. Um. But yeah, you know, like even thinking about Total Warhammer, there's, you know, quite a bit of DLC for that. Would I rather pay like a <laughs> Creative Assembly, like a Total War monthly subscription that just gives me the access to all of the Total War DLC? Um, could be an interesting prospect. The other oh. thing is, oh, go ahead. One of the other important things here is that these are primarily single player games. Like right. if you're yeah. playing a massively multiplayer RPG, which both of us have in the past and you still are now, uh, you're you have fear of missing out if you're not with your friends, if you're not with your guild, if there, mm -hmm. there's some new content that is dropped that's absolutely incredible. If you are playing Total Warhammer, you're playing a single player game. And if you just don't feel like playing it for six months, like, why would you have that subscription on and yeah. why would you get that subscription on in the first place? There's there's no FOMO there uh, that can really tie your motivation to continuing to play that game every month. Um, so. It, it's a weird situation where, yes, it feels conceptually like a really good idea, but the psychology of it is a little weirder than uh, it seems initially. Right. Well, there, there's also been some some experimentation with the other end of that, which is, you know, making the base game free to play. Um, I mean, Games Pass isn't free, but I'm pretty sure all of the base games, I think, for all of the modern Paradox games, except maybe CK3 are on Games Pass now. I was actually just looking at that. Well, CK3 um, started on Games Pass. So now you have the subscription fee for <laughs> platforms instead of for publishers or specific right. games, which seems to be a much better way to get around that, that FOMO issue I talked about. Because if you're just paying $15 a month to have access to hundreds of games, that's very different from I'm accessing the perfect version of one game that I might not want to play because it is only one game. 
But is that actually good for publishers? Is that actually good for developers? I know like Obsidian was saying that Outer Worlds being on Game Pass gave them flexibility that they were they were very pleased with now that they're working for Microsoft. Um, but I I don't know if Paradox is getting that. And also like Microsoft wants to get people locked in. They're probably paying publishers a lot of money to have the rights to those games. What happens when they get people locked in and now they don't want to pay people that much money anymore like like epic with its free games when it started yeah yeah i'm i'm really curious to see where it goes because in you know on on a basic level i kind of like the idea that people can try out these games for either as part of a you know a uh an expansion or a, a subscription they're already paying for or um just for free they've done some things where it's like it's free the base game's free if you pick it up this weekend um i think total war warhammer one also did this at some point it might just be totally free. the first game might be free now i did no research before this show as you can tell um just being a bad podcast host um because i think that i think that a lot of people who would be interested in these games might not be willing to spend that much money on it because there's this there there's this perception that they're intimidating and they're you know you might buy it and then like play it for like 10 hours and not understand what's going on and be frustrated and then you know you're out out 40 to 50 dollars or whatever but um there's there's an alternative psychology there where if you have dozens of games on game pass and you see Crusader Kings 3 and you're like, I'd give that a try. Sure. And you bounce off of it. You have no investment in continuing to play it. You, That's true. So like if you're paying $60 for a goddamn game, you are <laughs> going to try to make sure that that game is something that you want to play. Um, That's true. That's a good point. Well, let me give you a hypothetical. If we are going to have these strategy games, um, like a Total Warhammer or like a Crusader Kings or like Europe Universalis, even, um, you know, some of the smaller ones we've talked about, uh, Darkest Dungeon. Um, I think, you know, we didn't touch on Battletech, but that's one that I wish had had a longer tail. Um, yeah, just because Battletech. Like we'll continue making your point. We can oh, talk yeah, about Battletech in a minute. Battletech was one where I was like, I wish that they had supported this as long as other Paradox games have been supported, because I feel like there was a lot more they could have done with it. Um, I feel like that game was literally made with duct tape. Like, <laughs> it, it is a very ramshackle. There is, like, a famous uh, memory leak bug uh, that has never been able to be fixed, and I am reasonably certain that this is why they have not decided that, you know, the Battletech model is going to be used for the rest of, uh, you know, a giant Battletech universe in the way that Total Warhammer became, you know, that uh, that franchise's big universe. Um, yeah, because may, I feel like they might have actually wanted to do that, but they could never actually fix it and make it do the things they wanted. Uh, so we ended up with this really 
interesting specific game that can't do anything else otherwise it'll break that's just that's just my impression <laughs> i have not talked with anyone at harebrained about like why this is but the fact that there is a massive unpatched memory leak i think suggests that uh they did the best they could and that was that was about yeah. it yeah yeah it definitely did seem like they were teeing it up for that kind of long long uh tail support um, but here's here's sort of my hypothetical that like if we're if we're going to have these strategy games, they're going to be around for like 10 years after release. And, you know, they got to keep paying, uh, you know, artists, programmers, QA, writers, all this stuff. What do you think is like the ideal model to monetize that not from like a corporate maximization of profits perspective, but from like. This is going to be a good game on day one. It's going to be a really, really good game 10 years from now. And we're still going to be generating content that people want to pay money for. I mean, I think that strategy games require such an... They're like this intricate web of systems, right? Mm -hmm. And if you disrupt one part of the web, you may end up disrupting another part of the web that you didn't even realize and obviously like very very rigid playtesting very aggressive playtesting and uh other QA uh we haven't even mentioned early access but that's another another major a ma major component of this discussion um so like simply from a quality of game perspective i don't think you can say that there is some perfect way because everything could end up being that stringy spaghetti and from a monetization point of view, I also don't think there's ever going to be an ideal way because you are going to have some people who play every piece of it when it's new and some people who are going to come in years later and have to try to figure it out. Like you you see what happened with Destiny last week where they just said, like, we have a story expansion that we're sunsetting. No one else. No one can ever play this story expansion again. Come February. It's just done. And like, it's a very strange that people paid money for this, even have hard copies of it, and it's just gone. But it's also very strange for Bungie not to be able to say our game will be better if we actually take something out. Um. So yeah, I think I think there's a lot of different tensions, and I don't think there's ever going to be any kind of good answer. We can't just have a strategy game that's also Fortnite. We can't just say that civilization needs to have expansions with a handful of individual sims. Um especially because we don't know what Civ 7 is going to look like. Maybe they're going to take it into a very different direction. Uh you look at something like Humankind, and that game has plenty of civilizations. Like the whole point is that you can customize and do whatever with them. Some of them may need to be patched to not be broken or not be shitty. You could also, in theory, add more, but adding more doesn't really alter the, the core of the game as much as it does with Civ. So uh, they probably have to look at expansions in a completely different way from how Amplitude has done expansions with the Endless series both legend and space which mm -hmm. are largely faction editions right well it, you you mentioned early access you mentioned patching and that's kind of one of the the final big ideas i i wanted to examine with this is these games that have 
very, very, very long development cycles. Um, you know, I think you for when Leviathan came out uh, and it was in a pretty poor state. Uh, what I, I even said and I saw a lot of the community saying is like, yeah, it's bad, but I trust that Paradox will fix it eventually. So I'm just going to go play something else <laughs> for now. Um, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes you have a Total War Three Kingdoms where it's like, nope, um, it's in a pretty bad state and we're just going to leave it that way. Um, what do you feel like the the sort of conception of of strategy games being a game as a service? Um, trying to think how to phrase this as a question. Well, I, I have a, a sort of. <laughs> A yeah. mirror, a mirror image here that might help you because yeah. I know that you've dealt with this on your other podcast and you know tweeted about it. But like, if you're paying full attention to Paradox doing all its dev diaries for its next patch or expansion, you're getting excited about that and don't necessarily want to play the game as is. So there's always this sort of state of something is going to be better in the future. Right? Should I play it currently or not? That Paradox games have had to deal with. Yeah, yeah. So I guess sort of the question I'm, I, I was trying to get at is, is like, is that fair? Is that good? Is it like for for players to adopt this stance that like, yeah, it's going to release broken and but it's fine. They'll patch it later. Like, should should that just should that become part of the 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 expectation or do we need to find a way to hold these these release versions to a higher standard? Well, I think we we <laughs> answered that question when we did our Stellaris reviews, where you said that all my critiques were correct, <laughs> but you still would have given it a ninety. Uh, <laughs> I I I do I no longer support that statement. I was I was in many many ways a different person. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah. Also, yeah. mostly had played multiplayer at that point, and Stellaris 1.0 was much more fun in multiplayer because other players instigate the conflict. You don't have to wait for the AI to do it. Yeah, so, but like, yeah, yeah. There, there's this situation where some companies have earned this trust, and you know, we talked about Blizzard, and Blizzard mm -hmm. has thrown that trust away in multiple ways. Paradox may be in the processing of in the process of throwing that trust away. Um, you know, they, they have not had the world's greatest expansion release reaction, let alone they're, you know, going going to be a public traded or they're switched to being a publicly traded company and the the harassment issues that uh are are coming to light a lot more. Like how much are you as someone who is spending money, not you as in Leanna Hafer, uh, how much are is anyone going to be willing to give that trust and say, yeah, I, I assume Leviathan will be good eventually? Or, yeah, I, I, I can expect that Paradox will make Stellaris at least tolerable in the future, but I'm reviewing the version that exists now. Um, and that's that's a difficult thing all around. There's not like a perfect answer to this because sometimes companies that you do have high standards for and they live up to those standards just suddenly go down the shitter, usually when they're purchased by Activision or EA, but. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's always like a sort of Damocles hanging over my head now because, you know, I 
I, I, I pack bonded with Warcraft when I was a child <laughs> and then watched Blizzard basically destroy all the trust that I had of him multiple times. Um, so now, you know, the 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 companies that that I'm really vibing with what they're doing in general, the creative assemblies of the world, the paradoxes of the world. Um, yeah, it's it's hard for me to justify that kind of trust anymore, which might just be endemic to the games industry. And that's probably maybe just how we should look at all game studios, period, is like everything. Just, Everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, he no gods, no masters, no heroes. Yeah. And, you know, they did eventually fix Leviathan. Um, I feel like it, in terms of money where their mouth is, Paradox does not really leave their games in a bad place. I can't think of one of, you know, their in-house stuff that has been. I, I wish they would stop adding stuff to Hearts of Iron because I think it's too complicated at this point. Now, uh, which, this time, naval yeah. invasions are going to be perfect and make oh, yeah. total sense. Uh -huh. Yeah, I'll just, yeah, I'll watch another 45-minute video and it'll all click into place yeah. uh, how boats work. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess... I guess sort of the uh, the upshot of it is that strategy games um, are are moving into a space where at least some of the the core franchises are trying to be more of a service type thing where they're going to launch a game and they're going to plan for it to still be in development 10 years from now, uh, which can be a good thing because we get, you know, cool new factions and stuff. We get lots of patches. It can be a bad thing if they don't know where to stop because it might end up being really bloated and they might feel obligated to add more features that are not actually uh, well thought out or positive additions uh, to to the game. Um, and, and sometimes we from the outside <laughs> will make these judgments and be wrong. Like we did a yeah. 3MO on Crusader Kings after Horse Lords came out and we're like, this game is done. Let's put it in the oven. It's cooked. Or take it out of the uh, yeah. oven, whatever. And then they were like, all right, let's make the expansion to end all expansions. And it was fantastic. Uh, I can't remember that it was Crusade or like Holy War. Oh, Con yeah, Conclave did come after Horse Lords. You no, not right. Conclave. The the one that oh, like... Oh, Holy, Holy Fury? Yeah, Holy Fury. That yeah, like yeah. you could customize the game. You could include fictional uh, factions, uh, you know, animal factions, all these kinds of crazy shit that worked really really well and was like this this has me back in on crusader kings again and i would have said after horse lords and after a few of the other ones like yeah this is just not you, you you've run this one into the ground it's time for it's time for an update but and i wonder this this kind of is a good way to put a nice little bow on it but i wonder if that is because holy fury they knew it was going to be the last expansion yeah and so of, in a weird it's way sort of they like were like a tv show that knows that this is going to be the last season so they <laughs> right. actually start trying again like we're done with crusader kings 2 as a service let's what can we do with the amount of time and dev resources we have to leave crusader kings 2 in the best possible place that we can, uh, which resulted in, yeah, one of one of the best expansions that they ever made. So I don't know, maybe they should uh, just plan ahead to have it end uh, at the end of season five. Uh, <laughs> 
and uh, then not continue it for another 11 years afterwards. Although I have I, I have heard uh, I've seen some of your arguments that there are some good supernatural seasons beyond that point. So maybe I should check them out at some point. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's like, is it as good as the first five seasons? No. Is it a good thing that it continued like overall? I don't think you could say yes or no super easily. Uh, it's nice that there is a 15 season long goddamn TV show that you could devote uh, all of your half watching energy to on, on a on a streaming service. Like uh, there 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 is a niche for that. It's an interesting and useful one for some people, and maybe not for others. Um, and you know something like Crusader Kings, maybe a five year cap on that would have resulted in us not getting Conclave or not getting Holy Fury. And that's not what we wanted. That's um, true. That's true. And, you know, we, we talk about Three Kingdoms and Three Kingdoms, like, filled in the map of China. That's the number one thing that it needed to do was, you know, get the Southlands actually populated with playable factions. They're there. Um it got most of the the dynasty warriors quality characters as unique figures within the game they're there and they also left it in a way where it was like wait a minute you could have done a lot more here there is yeah. so, so many directions that could could be taken and i don't know it's it's a weird situation where i don't think that i don't think you could say that the british model of television is better because you know, the American model of 22 episodes a season is also creates a lot of room for really interesting experimentation. Um, yeah, uh, sorry for not allowing a little bow to be tied onto things here, but sometimes oh, that's so, fine. Sometimes more is good and sometimes less is good. And sometimes both of those things are true <laughs> at the same time. Uh, well, until we uh, until we build up to the uh, three of my spinoff or we review uh like cw style teen dramas um <laughs> i think that might be a uh that might be a good place to end it i don't know if was, any other final thoughts on strategy games as a service that you were really wanting to get out it's it's a really weird genre for it because of that those connected um that connected web of transparent mechanics uh mm -hmm. It's not a genre where like you could just toss on a bunch of skins like a Fortnite has. It's a genre where people are going to want there to be more. And sometimes you you need to have it be less. And that's just always going to be kind of there. And, you know, it, that this this can create fruitful experiments and also create uh situations like three kingdoms where we don't know what and why they're doing what they're doing but it seems bad <laughs> all right well on that uh three moves ahead is hosted on the idle thumbs network uh you can find out more and check out our forums over on idlethumbsnet slash 3ma um Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you, where you can head on over to patreon.com slash 3MA and uh, get in on our, our super secret Discord server, as Rob calls it. Um, I hear I hear stirrings, stirrings of uh, some Age of Empires 4 multiplayer on the horizon. 
Uh, if that's that sounds interesting to you, now is probably the time to strike while the iron is hot. Um, we're also on Twitter, where we are at 3MA. This episode was produced by me, and we'll be back next week with another great episode. So for Rowan, this is Len saying good night. <laughs>